Hey, it's exciting. My name is Paul. If you haven't met me uh, or if I haven't met you, it's exciting to have that opportunity tonight to meet you. I'm one of the leaders here, and I've been asked to kick off this series. I'm really excited about this. Um, we've got a new series following Vision Sunday, and it's basically Mike's passion, uh, and I guess right across all the New Life churches, is to increase biblical literacy. Um, we as Christians, are part. we become part of a much bigger story when we become Christians. And of course, it makes sense that you have to know your own history. You have to know where your story is going and where it's been to know how to improvise in the present and to do that well. So basically, biblical literacy enables you to understand who you are, the community that you're a part of, and where it's all heading. Now, if you haven't already picked up one of these, grab one on the way out, um, and hopefully you have good eyesight and you can read the daily readings. I, I've, it's just me. The, the last year... I can't, I can't read stuff. Anyway, you know, Katie will say, hey, look at this on her phone. And I say, whoa, I can't read that. Stand on the other side of the room. But I didn't notice it until the last 12 months. I'll talk to some other older people later about how to deal with that. But this has a whole bunch of readings, and there's a WhatsApp group, very exciting, people getting involved uh, in conversation just about the daily readings, getting advice, how do I understand this, how do I understand that? And I don't want to be... Um, false about it and say that the whole Bible is easy to read and it all makes perfect sense on your first read. You know that that's not the case. But I can tell you, after, I don't know, 30 plus years of wrestling, maybe 40, of wrestling with the Bible, that the more you wrestle with tough texts, the more they start to speak to you. And sometimes it's looking at the difficulty head on that actually ends up showing you some, some new light or opening your eyes in a new way. And I, actually, that's pretty much what we're going to do tonight. Um, but having said all that about the series, uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever had one of those experiences where your expectation has not met with the reality? Now, you've seen the memes. This is a very popular one, the burger one. Uh, this is probably the sort of go-to meme for expectation versus reality. You see it as you're going through the drive-through. Yeah, that huge burger there, that will fill me up. I'll take it. And by the time you pick it up at the drive-through window, it's not so delightful. Or maybe this one, a bit of false advertising. Yeah, I'll put my three kids in this little blow-up pool, fill it up with water because we haven't got a pool and it's hot summer. And you get it home. She looks a little disappointed, doesn't she? She can't even sit down in that thing. Or on a more personal note, when I was 28 and I started to go bald, I wondered, what will I look like? What's under this luscious head of hair? Yeah. If you're about 28 years old and you're male and you're starting to fret, come and talk to me after the service. Or better, come and get some prayer ministry. But when we open our Bibles to page 1, to Genesis 1, let's move, let's move on from that slide, that's <laughs> kind of disturbing. Um, when we open our Bibles to chapter 1, page 1, verse 1, I don't think we necessarily see in front of us what we expected to see in front of us. And tonight, as, you know, as I've been preparing this sermon over the last few weeks and thinking about it, more and more I've thought, I'm probably not going to get past this first sentence. I am a little bit, but it really is quite a complex sentence, 
And there's so much in it that we don't expect to see there that I really think the reality is different sometimes to our expectation, at least to what we think should be in the first, on the first page of the Bible. But the unexpected details turn out to be the very clues that we need to read this well. So let me pray with you before we get into it. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this afternoon together, would you give us insight? Would you use the preparation that I've done but not be held back by my many limitations? Please, Holy Spirit, I know that you are doing something in the lives of these people here tonight, and I pray, I plead with you to have your way in our hearts and in our minds, in our lives today. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, there are some surprises here. It's not what we expect, I don't think, when we turn to uh, page one. And if we're really honest, the problem is that what we get in Genesis 1.1 is not what we think Genesis 1 should be about. It's like the burger and the meme. I know what I should be getting for my money, but when I get to that last window in the drive-thru, it's not a delight. In other words, there are tensions here. There's stuff that we don't want to see because we're not sure how to understand it. But with the Bible, it's never a good idea to find something difficult and then just push past it, looking for something simpler, something that we will understand. We need to stop and reflect a little. Because I'm sure you'd agree the words are important, aren't they? The words of Scripture are important. We believe that this is God's living word for us today, and I'm sure that many of you are here because you share the conviction that these are the words that God will use to say something to you this afternoon. Many of you have come with an open heart to hear what God wants to say into your life at this point in time. So the first sentence of the Bible, here it is, let's have a look. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. I'm just going to stop there because we've hit our first little uh, speed bump. The first surprise here, I guess, is that the book of Genesis, uh, it, it doesn't begin with verse 3. Let there be light, right? God's creative activity. That's not the first word. Before we get to that, we have to read about this very unusual state of affairs. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, that means everything that is, the earth was formless and empty, right? Without shape and without content. Now, that's an unusual way to describe something that doesn't exist, right? It's a little bit like me describing my Ferrari out there. It's formless and it's void. <laughs> and it probably will be for some time. But there is actually a very good reason that the author describes the world, the earth, as a formless void. No shape, no content. I mean, you'd think it would be more logical to say, before God created the earth, but no, in the same breath, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. Now, the author, or maybe I should say the poet, and we'll come back to that, is setting us up with some headings at the top of the page. 
setting up the structure of this poem that's going to follow. And I reckon I can show you this in about one minute so as not to waste time, and then at home you can get into this in more detail. Are you ready? Oh, yes, I like that. Are you all ready? Are you ready upstairs? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Okay, let's go. First sentence in the Bible describes the world as being unformed and unfilled. As I said, those are two major headings that uh, give us a sense of what's to follow. Days 1, 2, and 3 are going to respond to the unformed nature of the world, and days 4, 5, and 6 are going to respond to the unfilled by filling it. Day 1, light and dark, separated. That's a forming activity. Day 2, sky and sea, separated. That's a forming activity. And then day 3, the dry land. Now we get to days 4, 5, and 6, which correspond directly to days 1, 2, and 3, because... What was formed on 1, 2, and 3 gets filled in 4, 5, and 6. If you were going to fill up some light and dark spaces, what would you use? Sun, moon, and stars is what I think I heard from the gentleman at the back. Day 2, if you were going to fill up the sky and sea, what would you use, Cal? No, you don't fill the sky and sea with more sky and sea. Dana, birds and fish. Congratulations. You've just cost me 10 seconds of my minute. Day three, the dry land. How do you fill dry land with animals and humans? That, my friends, is Genesis 1. Now, you don't don't have to clap, but you can. Um, This is Genesis 1 in a nutshell. And do you know why we get excited? Well, I know you're excited. You're just as excited about this as me, aren't you? Yes, I thought so. The reason we get excited when we see stuff like this is because there's order. We find systems and patterns in the world around us. A lot of us get excited. We're like, wow, did you notice that? I mean, Peter Armstrong, who goes to this church, gets very excited about palindromes. Do you know what a palindrome is? It's like when a word or a number is the same backwards. And so the 2nd of Feb last year was a big event for palindrome people, because it was 0202-2020. And then, of course, there were people who were waiting for just the right time of day to post and say, right now, the minutes and the seconds and everything, it's all, it's a palindrome. And they're so into it. I mean, I, and maybe that is a little bit exciting, but it's just a pattern. What's going on here? There's a pattern here, for sure, but what does it mean? What's the significance of this? I can't tell you how sad it makes me, honestly. Sometimes frustrated and occasionally angry. When you hear Genesis 1 and people's minds go immediately, creation or evolution, God or atheism. You know, it's these polarizing debates and sometimes that's all we can hear, creation or no, faith or science, as if those, you can't have both of these things. And sometimes our minds go straight to that when we hear Genesis 1, and we miss what it's really about. We miss the really good stuff. In fact, we miss everything, because we try to force something on the text that isn't there. But let's come back to what it does say. We've seen this clear structure around forming and filling. So... The poet who wrote Genesis 1 is into structure, as most poets are. Is that the takeaway? Is that what we write down in our notes, Paul, and we go home and just talk about that? No. There's a little bit more. Stay. Hang around. There's, we're only halfway through that first sentence. 
In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. What's next? And a darkness covered the face of the deep, or the abyss, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, things are getting a little bit weird here, aren't they? Because as I said earlier, God doesn't really get going in his creative activity until verse 3, let there be light. But already, we've got darkness. We've got this deep, watery abyss. And we've got the waters, the face of the waters. And you could ask the question, where did these things come from? Are we supposed to read this as a scientific account? If we are, we've got to ask, where did these things come from? Now, you could say darkness is just the absence of light, Paul. Okay, fair enough. But you might also have noted that the darkness is described as a thing. It's like a, a thick blanket that's being described as being spread out on the face of the deep. By the way, the word for darkness is choshek. <laughs> what a great word. It's not a COVID safe word, so I'm not going to get you to say it. Choshek. It's a little bit spitty, but I'll give you another word to say in a moment. See, Mike said to me during the week, I'll be disappointed if you're not throwing Hebrew words around left, right, and center. So there it is. I, th I sort of think Hoshek would be a great name for a baddie, a villain, right? Hoshek. Who? Who was that? That was Hoshek. Oh, it's, it's, you, you feel me? It's kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's a terrifying word. It's, it's dark. Anyway, let's move on. I, I get the feeling sometimes that I should just move on. So you've got the darkness, you've got the abyss, these waters. This one, you can say, to home. Nice. Is that your first Hebrew word or your third? They're very good. Again, to home. Yes, nice. All right. Come to Trinity and I'll teach you a couple more words. To home is a word. I always have to get a little advertisement in there for Trinity in case you're wondering. It means a vast, watery abyss. It's a word that's used right throughout the Old Testament to talk about um, the great depths of the ocean, right? Which is why it's described as the deep. So what's being pictured here is this vast, watery expanse, empty, with darkness over it. Now, we have to understand that the author lived way before it was discovered that the earth is round, Right. In primary school, probably didn't learn that the Earth is spherical and part of a solar system and all that sort of stuff that we take for granted. So in a Hebrew um, worldview, you've just got this two-dimensional reality, the heavens and the Earth. And here, before God gets going in creating all things, darkness and the deep, the waters. This is the reality that God is speaking into. So why these two things? That's the question that was just on your mind, isn't it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Why darkness and why waters? Well, I would love to spend more time on this, but I don't have time. But right through the Bible, if you look from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22, you will see that darkness and waters are symbols of chaos. What's chaos? Chaos is life-diminishing stuff. It sucks the life out of you. If you think about it, these things pop up again and again in the Psalms, 
The darkness is overwhelming me. I was being pulled down and drowned. You've got all these stories like the flood, which destroy life. You've got uh, Jesus in John 1 coming in as the light of the world into the darkness. You've got the darkness that comes over the whole world when, the cro- when he's on the cross and he dies. You've, you've got lots and lots of examples. You could probably think of more. Of darkness and waters being symbols of a life-diminishing reality. Because in a way, you could sum up the whole of the biblical story and your story as a tension between those two things. What is life-giving and what is life-diminishing? The power of chaos versus God's creative power to give life. One of, one of the things that I used to find difficult about this is I, you get to the end of the Bible and it says there's no more ocean, there's no more sea, and there will be no more sun because Jesus is the light, right? So you get no more darkness either. So these two things that have been symbols of chaos right through the Bible, they're gone at the end. Now, Revelation is a completely symbolic book, and please don't grab little bits of it and read them literally, because that leads to all kinds of problems. But I was upset about this as an Aussie kid. No beaches? No ocean? What the heck? And in, in the book of Job, you know, when, when God is telling Job that he has ordered creation in such a way as to make life possible, he tells him in Job 38, 11, I've set boundaries for the ocean. And he says this, This far you shall come and no further. Here shall your proud waves be stopped. This is God's way of saying, yes, the ocean is perceived as a life-diminishing reality. Like if you're just in the deep depths of the ocean and you can't get to the boundary, the beach, you're in trouble. And this is God saying, I've put boundaries around these things. And this is what we see back in Genesis 1. But we better keep moving. The wonderful thing about this, like coming back from these two realities, the waters and the darkness, is that God in Genesis 1 redeems these two things. He takes these two life-diminishing realities and he puts boundaries around them, borders around them, so that they actually serve a purpose in this universe that we live in, the world that we live in. In Genesis 1, God makes life possible. If you think about it, that's what it's all about. Separating light and dark, sky and sea, putting dry land in the middle. It's creating a space for human life to be possible, right? It's a beautiful image, really. And then filling that up with all this good stuff and telling us to enjoy it. But here, God takes darkness and he does something with it. He doesn't destroy it altogether, which a Hebrew mind would think, get rid of that darkness, get rid of it altogether. But God separates it from the light in order to do something awesome. Who here enjoys sleeping? Yeah, that's a a sea of hands. That's almost like worship. I mean, we love sleeping, right? We need sleep, but we also need the day. Have a look at what God does with the darkness here. Verses 4 and 5. God saw that the light was good, And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Our whole sense of time and seasons comes from this ordering of creation. Darkness is redeemed. And the same thing happens with the waters in the very next day. 
these eternally deep waters that would quench all human life, God divides into sky and sea, and he puts us right there in the middle in the safe spot where we can flourish and live. Have a look at verse 6. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters. Let it separate waters from waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Again, life-threatening waters are redeemed. Now, do you know what I mean when I say the word redeem? It can sound a little bit like Christianese, can't it? A little bit like jargon. Let me just explain it briefly. It's a really important word. It's when you take something broken, something useless, something bad, and you restore it with a sense of purpose. You redeem it. I had a, I had a, a problem uh, three or four years ago because I had some great T-shirts. I'd been wearing them for about 15 years. Can I hear, a, can I, can I hear an amen? You, 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 this is a problem, right? You've been wearing these T-shirts for such a long time, you can't part with them. But they've got coffee stains, they've got yellow pits. I mean, there's not a lot you can do with these t-shirts. And I, I'm at the point where I'm thinking, I'm saying to Katie, I can't throw these out. I can't. I can't do it. I've got to keep wearing them until I die. You know, they're just, they're part of me. So you know what Katie did? She took those t-shirts. I know how you think this sentence is going to end. And she burnt them. No, she didn't. She took those t-shirts. She got a sewing machine out. And she created some little dresses for the girls, for our daughters. We got two daughters. They're a bit bigger now, seven and nine, and they'd never put up with this now. But when they were little and they couldn't have any say in it, we gave them these little dresses made out of my T-shirts. And it was great because I got to see my T-shirts around for another couple of years. Katie made something, and she had the reward of seeing that being worn around the place. And the girls were like, Dad, you used to wear this. Now I'm wearing it. Smells a little funky, but it's pretty cool. And they loved these dresses. And that is what it means to redeem something, right? To restore it with a sense of purpose. And the thing is, the thing to understand here is this is so characteristic of God. It's not something God does on occasion and people say, well, God redeemed someone again. God did something redemptive again. This is so core to who God is that it is God's identity. God is a redeemer. You can't even separate the, ca the character and nature of God from this notion. God cannot help but save things that he has made. He will never, ever give up on stuff, give up on people. It's, it, I mean, you may be sitting here tonight thinking, yeah, but you don't know, I've, I keep messing up, you know? I've had my second chance, and then my third, and then my fourth, and I just can't get this together. God will not, cannot give up on you. He cannot. He loves you so much. He will always be 100% committed to redeeming you and your faults. But the other question that comes to mind is, shouldn't this idea of a redeemer come into the biblical story a little bit later on? You know? This is Genesis 1, after all. Shouldn't this be about creation? And then later, maybe, let's say, the Exodus, the next book of the Bible, when God saves the people of Israel out of Egypt, that would be a good time to emphasize his nature 
as a redeemer? Well, the answer to that question, and it's a little bit mind-bending, but is simply that the author who wrote Genesis 1 already knew this aspect of Yahweh's character. Now, it's, sometimes we think, we, we, or we don't think, but we just assume that whoever wrote Genesis was like an astronaut floating around in space, you know, day one, got it. Day two, yep, got it. Day three, even though humans aren't created to day six. I mean, the, the whole thing implodes on itself a little bit when you think of it that way, but we don't necessarily think, where did this account come from? But to take a shortcut, I'll just tell you that the vast majority of Old Testament scholars agree that this was written about two and a half thousand years ago, during the exile. So when Israel was in Babylon, Babylon had wiped them out and they had lost all their identity markers. Jerusalem destroyed, their leadership killed, the law gone, their land taken away from them. And they had no idea who we are anymore and they're trying to regroup and regather that. And at that time, the vast majority of the Old Testament was written, actually. So the thing to try and get our heads around, because I think this is important, is that the creation account in Genesis 1 was written after Israel had been saved out of Egypt, after Israel had experienced God's saving activity over and over again. So when they go to write a creation account, they've got to introduce God as a redeemer, even before they get to creation. Even before they get to God doing creative stuff, God is a redeemer. Do you see what I'm saying there? It's no surprise. In fact, when Israel comes out of Egypt, have a think about that. They come out of a chaotic, life-threatening environment led by a cloud and light where a great wind drives back the sea and dry land appears as the way forward to life. Have a look at this verse. This is in Exodus, okay? Jumping forward to Exodus. The Lord drove the sea back by strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, if you can't see what reference is being made here, then you haven't read Genesis 1. But do you see what I'm getting at? This same God who creates also saves those two things are two sides of the same coin. When God does something to save you, to redeem you, he's also doing something creative. He's making something brand new in you, of you. It can be something you had never dreamed of before, or it can have a consistency with what's come before, like the word redeem. I guess you could follow these themes through further too. I mean, you think about baptism, right? Baptism is how we identify with these kinds of events in Scripture. We go through the waters, and as the waters divide and we come up, the Holy Spirit is breathed upon us. We're filled with the Spirit for our new life and raised from death to life. All of this stuff is part of the same story, and that's part of this series it's to show that Genesis 1 to 11 sort of is a microcosm of the whole biblical story that follows. And what happens with Israel happens with the church and, and Jesus in the middle of all that. You'll see. It's exciting. Trust me. I'm a doctor. Hey, I've never used that phrase before. So this is a God 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was not in the notes. Um, <laughs> what I'm getting at is that when we open our, page, our Bibles, right on page one, we get the fruit of all this history, right? Israel's had this long-standing relationship with God, and God has saved them again and again and again, but they put it on page one because you have to know this from the outset. God is a redeemer. God takes these two primary symbols of chaos, these life-threatening forces, and puts them in their place so that they can become part of our life-giving universe. But there's more, because we're not through that first sentence yet. So let's come back to the first sentence, because there's a little bit more here yet to see. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while... A wind, breath, or spirit from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, I didn't realize, but the last song that we sang tonight, I'd never sung that before, actually. I really like that song. But did you notice how it had interchanged these three ideas quite loosely? The wind, breath, and spirit. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew word ruach, another un-COVID-friendly word which you can practice at home, Maybe some of you know the word ruach. It means spirit, wind, or breath. And this is one of these unfortunate occasions when, when you translate to the English, you just have to pick one. And it's unfortunate because they're all so meaningful. And incidentally, the, the Greek word in the New Testament, pneuma, also has the same three meanings, wind, breath, and spirit. And so you get this rich resonance with these words. But in English, we kind of lose it a little bit. But the point is... With this chaotic reality, darkness and the waters, what's happening there? What's the image? The image wasn't finished. This is the end of it. Over these formless waters, a wind from God is blowing, right? Something's about to happen. This is exciting. Or over these empty, chaotic waters, the very breath of God is blowing. That's another beautiful image, a hopeful image. Life is literally rippling over the surface of these waters that would diminish life. Or, over this dark abyss, God's personal spirit, God's empowering presence, the very being of God, is fluttering like a bird. That word, swept, can be used for a bird fluttering over the surface, like in the flood. And the flood brings all this stuff back again, by the way, because, oh, who's preaching on the flood? Who's the, lucky, who's the lucky varmint who got that one? Is varmint still a word that's used? No, that's not, I've got to stick to my notes. Now, if you have a poetic bone in your body, and I think all of us have a poetic bone in our body, you've got to see the beauty in this, right? That this wind, this breath, this spirit that is just trembling over the surface of this deep, ready to do something new and to bring new life. And the most important thing I can say tonight, the most important thing that I want you to remember is that Genesis 1 is not about some ancient past. It is about today. It is about your life right now in this moment. I don't know what chaos you face. I don't know what is diminishing your life right now. But this is a beautiful promise. 
The Spirit of God is fluttering over your life. The breath of God just waiting to be released into you and your circumstances. How good is that? Just cannot wait to bring life. These words are so, so full of hope. Written by a people in a time of crisis. Everything around them in ruins in Babylon. Everything has come undone. The world has come undone. They've been crushed by their enemies. They feel that God has abandoned them. They felt God had turned his back on them because of their sin. Have you ever felt like that? They felt displaced, scattered, and vulnerable. Have you ever felt like that? They were not in charge of their own circumstances. Have you ever felt like that? Now, if you did feel like that, what would you write in your journal? Would you go all scientific and try to satisfy the minds of people two and a half thousand years into the future? Probably not. Would you try to articulate what happened way back when, even though you weren't there, and get it all right? Probably not. You'd write a song of hope. You'd write a song of hope, words that express the nature of our God as a redeemer, one who saves us from our darkest hour, from our abandonment, from our darkness. You'd probably do something similar to what the Israelites did. And that's why we have Genesis 1, this first creation account. There's another creation account, but that's Genesis 2. That's for Aaron next week. We'll talk about that in preaching class, by the way. I, I'm happy to look over your notes with a big red pen. No, joke, joking, joking. <laughs> Not at all. A big green pen, right? Yeah. Yep, okay, I hear an amen. But this poem, it's about all kinds of things. It's about God, God's redemptive character. It's about the purpose of being human. It's about how order brings life out of chaos. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word chaos. Car accident, last night's dinner, your bedroom. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we define chaos. And you know, probably that order is life-giving, right? Structure is life-giving. If you're still a teenager, I apologize. It's not nice hearing these things. It's upsetting. But this is a record of how things are. Today, yesterday, tomorrow. Genesis 1 is a vivid description of reality. So I hope you understand what I'm getting at here because life-diminishing forces are all around us. They're on our doorstep every single day trying to suck our lives out of us. The love of money, it's life-diminishing. It's life Lack of order, life-diminishing. Pornography, life-diminishing. Pride and vanity, life-diminishing. Lust, greed, I want what she's got, life diminishing. 
resentment, a refusal to open your heart and forgive. Life diminishing. And some of these life diminishing forces are within us. They're so strong. Shame, anxiety, inadequacy. And we say to ourselves, what can I do? I can't do anything about this. I feel helpless. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. This is the reality in which we live. And you know, this series is about the gospel of Genesis, the good news of Genesis. But I have to say that you can't get the good news until you've understood the bad news. And here's the bad news, folks. There is nothing that you can do to defeat the chaos. There's nothing you can do to overcome it. It's relentless. It's bigger than you. It's not going anywhere. These forces are all around us. We have to understand that because it makes the good news so good. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep and a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God hovered over your life waiting for permission to breathe. Let's be real here. These chaotic forces, they threaten to tear a rift in you between what is and what could be and to tear you asunder and leave you in that state. A menacing power is set against you and God's promises for you. But God's power, God's personal spirit matches and overcomes that power. In all that I've said tonight, and I've said a fair bit, I guess, there's just one little verse that I haven't read yet. One little verse. And it's a very important one. So let me read that to you, and you're going to read it to me. Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. What a great promise. Can you say this with me? Genesis 1, 3. That was lame, but we're going to come back to it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The whole lot. You ready? Starting with the reference. Genesis 1, 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Are you just reading it? Let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that. Okay. I'm not going to say it either. Reference first. Three short phrases. Take it in. Ready? Genesis First memorization, 101. Boom. Well done. Now, do you know why we need to memorize this sort of scripture? Why we need it in our hearts and our minds all through the day? Because there will come a time when darkness has you in its grip, when you feel that your feet are being pulled down and you're drowning, you're going under, and you need to hear this. And if you've memorized it, God's Holy Spirit will say it to you and remind you. Then God said... Let there be light, and there was light. Then God said, let there be healing, and there was healing. Let there be peace, and there was peace. Let there be revival, and there was revival. Let there be eternal salvation, and there was 
eternal salvation. Let there be forgiveness. Let there be wholeness, shalom. There are so many things that God wants to give us. And there is nothing, there is nothing that God cannot do for you. Absolutely nothing. There's some beautiful encouragement here, isn't there? But there's also a challenge. And I guess I want to leave you with this and ask that you think about whether you'd like prayer tonight in this space. See, God brings life in Genesis 1 through a proper ordering of things. And unfortunately for a lot of us, the reason chaos can get its claws in to wreak havoc in our our lives is because we don't get our priorities right. They're out of order. We put other things above God. And that's a problem. That's a basic ordering that we need to get right. And I'm not going to suggest a whole bunch of things, what that might be, because I suspect as you sit there and as you open your heart to the Holy Spirit, that God would tell you that himself if he wants to do some business with you and get things right. So listen. Listen for the Spirit. And if you want some prayer tonight, Cal and myself and Alex will be available to pray with you. Let me say a prayer for you right now as I close. Lord God, thank you that you are so powerful and so loving and there is nothing you would not do to redeem one of your beautiful, precious creations. Thank you that you've made us in your image to reflect your likeness. I thank you that you're a God of order who brings life and light and love. I thank you that you want to breathe your spirit into us. As Cal mentioned earlier, there is nothing better than living in the power of the Spirit. Finding that words that come from our mouths and thoughts that come into our minds are from you. That is a wonderful reality. We want to live there. So we invite you, Lord God, fill us with your empowering presence. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.